Yeah, that's what streamers say. They say, let's go. What is it? Come on. Like, let's go. Streamers? Yeah, like um, YouTube streamers or, or Twitch streamers. Not YouTube, oh. Twitch streamers. Speedrunners okay. and such. I don't, even I don't, know, I don't what, know what you're what talking about. So, yeah, what are you talking about? It doesn't matter. Let's go. <sighs> Idiots. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Thursday, the 17th of June, and this podcast is Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury, George Hoare in London, and myself, Alex Hochuli. Uh, also, I find myself in London. But Welcome back! He's back. Our boy is finally back after years of like fucking exile in like Latin America, pretending to be like down with the campesinos. Launching the revolution against the gringos. He's back home. Welcome back, man. We it's we didn't see you. We That's didn't nice. come to meet you off off the train. Um, That's true. Because for, of in your triumphant return. But obviously, we would have had the Alpha Bunga Bunga banner. Welcome back, comrade. Lots of wreaths, you know, like a fucking parade and all of that. Yeah, my my Finland station moment finally arrived. You're, you're sounding a bit. You're sounding a bit jet lagged though. Uh, no, I'm I'm not, but I'm uh, I'm feeling I'm feeling annoyingly libertarian, and it, there's no other way to feel libertarian other than annoying, really, because that's beyond. <laughs> what uh, you think? You think libertarians are an, even annoying to themselves? Not just probably, to probably, else. yeah. Wow. Um, because there is this kind of a rate like, ah, don't touch me, don't touch me. <laughs> this is <laughs> my personal sovereignty. But um, I have to say that I'm feeling more libertarian than I was in Brazil. Um, but, you know, for I think for, for good reasons, I think it's a rational thing. Uh, whereas in Brazil, I was feeling like a, a complete like biopolitical authoritarian wanting the government to take strong action to prevent uh, you know, deaths from rising again to 4,000 deaths a day and all the rest of it. Um, whereas now I'm in the UK where most people are vaccinated and they're extending restrictions. And I just like, stop this, leave me the fuck alone. Uh, I want to be able to, you know, go well, to nightclubs li- and things that yeah. young people do. Well, yeah. liberty, liberty flows through the veins of, uh, of every Englishman. Um, and it also pervades <laughs> the air. So that's probably what you're, what you're picking up on your, if on your glorious return. True. If only that were true trying not to get too many things actually in my bloodstream foreign foreign bodies in my bloodstream especially while i'm in quarantine and having to be tested every three days so um, we'll try to avoid any of that uh, liberty in my blood what's it like to be back um it's uh it's it's kind of a bit rainy i'm, I'm going to be like george now it's a bit rainy um the weather is I'm just <laughs> the weather and uh drone on and uh we've only we've already got one george no, I was, you can't be a george i was interested in that sorry you were just getting you're just finally picking up some steam there <laughs> You're talking about the sort of rain and how long it's been raining for and what that meant about your plans. Um, yeah, that's that was good yeah. shit. Yeah, no, good. I mean, it makes me miss the outdoors uh, rather less if I'm uh, if I'm looking out the window and it's overcast and 17 degrees in the middle of summer. Anyway, um, so you got to promise you got to promise our listeners what we're going to do while we're in London. Like you got to kind of tell them, you know, give them like, well, let them know of all the excitements. One important important thing, which once restrictions are lifted, um, which will probably be never because this will just carry on forever, (laughs) uh, is that uh, is that they is that we will do a book launch live with people and hopefully all of you listeners uh, who are in the vicinity can come but we'll announce that in due course uh, we were going to do it when alex says live he means face to face not a live re- recorded session no exactly face to face mouth to mouth ass to ass the whole lot 
so we ass look forward to, to doing that <laughs> to mouth even if you wish uh it's going to be an unorthodox book once the pandemic's over case. you can do it all uh so we'll be doing that um and also be doing some recording i mean this is not of interest to you listener but you know recordings with the three of us in the same room maybe at some point which will be nice maybe there'll be a warmer dynamic um you know or maybe maybe the you know the tensions will finally bubble over into, into <laughs> yeah. some finally, physical violence finally we'll be able to settle some some scores <laughs> all that pent-up uh pandemic anger finally bursting out yeah so that's what we've got coming up um but today uh we're talking about well i was talking about authoritarian biopolitics I made a reference to that kind of uh, 10 million dollar jumble of words um george why don't you tell us what we're talking about today yeah, so we're going to be joined very shortly by a guest, Benjamin Bratton, to go through his his book, uh, Revenge of the Real, which I think is one of the um, the books that I've read recently that kind of really captivated me. I mean, I, I you know should should be honest and straightforward that I don't agree with, I don't probably don't agree with the main thesis of the book, but in terms of presenting a coherent, um, I guess, model um, of potential post pandemic politics, I think it's really um, yeah, so it's really an important kind of set of arguments and set of ideas to to engage with. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's a book about about the pandemic and about the the sorts of politics that that's brought brought with it. So, yeah, I mean, we could do basically every episode about about lockdowns and about pandemic, but I think this is this is one from maybe from a slightly different perspective than we might kind of naturally start from. Um, so yeah, a lot to a lot to discuss, and I'm yeah really looking forward to calling up Benjamin. So yeah, we're really happy to be joined um, by Benjamin Bratton, who is professor of visual arts at the University of California, San Diego, and program director of the Terraforming program at the Strelka Institute. Hi Ben, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. So just to, to kick it off, you know, we're, we're doing uh, we're talking about your book, The Revenge of the Real, um, which is out very shortly uh, and by the time this this uh, podcast comes out will have been released on verso um and yes to start at the beginning the title the revenge of the real um could you just explain this a little bit for our listeners what is the real and how is it taking revenge and on whom uh sure happy to um so the book is the book is about the pandemic uh and the what i see is kind of the the many of the the particularly the political and and uh, cultural uh, and, in some cases, technical failures of the ways in which we responded to the pandemic, and particularly, uh, particularly rich Western societies responded to the the, the pandemic. Um, the 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 way in which the pandemic itself is sort of presented uh, within within the book is as not so much as a state of exception, but as a, the revealing of a number of what might call pre-existing conditions um, in and pathologies in um, Western political culture. Mm. Um, another way in which we may want to look at it then is, given the fact that the pandemic didn't only hit Western rich Western political cultures, is the pandemic. If we look back on it, was also a kind of a kind of massive control experiment in comparative governance. That with the virus as the control variable. Uh, not just different governments and different regimes, but indeed different political cultures uh, dealt with or didn't deal with the 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 the, the virus and the pandemic in different kind in, in different kinds of ways. And there are a number of, I think, rather pressing 
lessons to be learned about what went wrong, um, what went yeah. right in, 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 in other in particular kinds of ways. So the, the, the real that is spoken of here is in essence, that which is what that which has been suppressed, if you like, by the recent wave of populist politics and the rise of and its reliance on a kind of politics of symbols um, that, you know, as I see it, the, the pandemic should be a, a death blow to, you know, different kinds of reactionary forms of political populism over, over recent years, particularly those that have been built on simple cathartic stories of resentment and recrimination and the contestation of of symbols instead of the things that the symbols are are, are meant to represent. Right. What became clear, I think, in the pandemic is that the the an under there is an underlying biological, chemical, epidemiological, material, physical reality that is indifferent to the 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 narratives uh, that we that 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 anyone Trump or Bolsonaro or Modi or whomever may wish to project upon it, uh, and that this has significant implications not just for how we deal with crises like the pandemic, but ultimately for how we we even define what a society is and what the relationship between each of us is to that to that circumstance and to one another. Thanks. That's a, a great starting point. And I think um, that, you know, introduces some of the themes of the book. And one of the things that you, you mentioned just there was about, I think, it, like our, our view of society or how we understand this. And I think one of the central models, mm-hmm. you know, that I found in the so interesting in the book was this idea of an epidemiological view of society. Um, so could you, you know, briefly talk us through this, um, this, I guess, this paradigm that maybe, you know, the pandemic has, has brought um, brought to the fore, you know, what are its key features and what does it mean for this idea of society? Yeah, so happy to. You know, I, I, a number of my friends and colleagues here at, at, at the university are, are, are epidemiologists and I've had the opportunity to kind of discuss what happened with them. And, and one of the things that I've learned from this anyways, was the way in which Let's say the way in which epidemiology as, as, a, as a science, but also as, as a, a kind of approach to understanding the relationships between people and, and the world sees society, which is really different than the way in which I was trained to as a, as a, as, as a, as a sociologist, where, you know, from the, let's say the kind of Pierre Bourdieu structuralist approach that society is a kind of, is a complex organizations of symbols um, and status competition over symbols and contestations of meanings and the organization of uh, uh, organizations of power associated with this, inc- including capital. Epidemiology sees it rather differently. It sees the society as a, a kind of a, a much more uh, entangled uh, assemblage that that is organized and comes in contact with itself and in, in in ways that are not necessarily dependent upon these kind of contestation symbols. But most importantly, I think is that it shifts our understanding of, and this I should say is something that we, I think we should hold on to after the pandemic. It's not just a lesson that helps us describe the pandemic, but it's a way in which the pandemic becomes a lens through which we can learn something much more fundamental, 
And that is that the dynamic between, you know, that our sense of our, our, our the emphasis shifts from personal experiences towards a, a kind of responsibility couched in the underlying biological and chemical realities that bind us, including forms of public transmission and transmissibility. And so for this, I think the dynamic between the individual and society, whether those are even really the right words anymore, broaden and connect uh, in, in ways that I, I think shift our view, where each organism, we begin to see ourselves in this light, is a kind of transmission medium for information, for ideas, um, that is defined by what we're connected to and 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 disconnected from. And you know, for me, a lot of this kind of came into became clear as I was watching the pandemic unfold, looking at my, you know, looking at the phone apps and other kinds of epidemiological chart, charts, trying to map how far the wolf was from the door and what was going on. And it shifts your view of the self in terms of an understanding like that there that of, of where you sit within these um, these these larger and these larger entanglements. And I happen to think that this has this has tremendous implications for the way in which we think about how we define and approach other kinds of, of similar sorts of problems from the organization of healthcare to climate change to almost anything else. Yeah, no, I mean, so I guess one one question just that comes out of that is, I mean, and not to, and maybe this is to, to simplify, but do you think it's that this kind of epidemiological view of society is essentially like reducible to a kind of biological in interconnectedness is, I mean, and, and, and that that's what the pandemic has, has kind of brought to the fore of everyone's minds. Is that too much of a, of a simplification though? Well, I think it would be because I think the big part of this is also, it's not just that there's a revelation or a disclosure that we are, that, that, that biology bats last, that there is a kind of underlying material reality there that is, that is to a certain extent indifferent, but it is that we are we are able to actually understand this and to and to model it. That the epidemiology is not just this, uh, you know, a, a kind of biological determinism. It is also a, a, a kind of epistemic project by which we, as a sapient species, learn to use forms of, of technology and, and, and other kinds of sensing allows us to sense and make sense and model and simulate and predict and hopefully act back upon what we've learned uh, to intervene and to provide care to yeah. one another. But the epidemiology becomes a kind of structural model through which that reality is not just as close, but becomes in a way political. Yeah, so it's, it, you touched on these ideas of, I guess, sensing and modeling, and this in the in the book you have um, several chapters where you, I, I guess, start to look at some of the technological apparatuses um, that can be utilized, or you know, in the course of the pandemic already were or, or are, and even before that were were utilized to kind of put this particular view of society you know, this epidemiological view of society into practice. Um, so in particular, in, in the book, you talk about the sensing layer, the importance of model simulations and how surveillance isn't the, the right word for what you see as this kind of necessary process of information gathering, monitoring, and all this sort of thing needed to power these, the, the kind of, um, you know, models and, and um, 
simulations of this sort of view of society so there's quite a lot there in in that question um but perhaps you could just explore a little bit um you know pick, pick whichever is your you know your, your kind of favorite part of, of of this question that i'm i'm asking um and just explore a little bit that i guess the relationship between this epidemiological view of society and its kind of technological underpinnings sure um so i what I call the sensing layer, maybe I'll start there. Um, what I call the sensing layer is all of the things that allow society, a city, uh, a, a, a country, however, to, to, under, to, mod, to understand, to and identify really what's going on within itself, to make sense of itself. And so it would include high-tech things like uh, you know, include high-tech sensors in one way or another, but it would also include high-touch modes, uh, 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 you know, some moments of gathering. When a nurse puts a, a needle in your arm or, or takes her temperature, this is also part of the sensing layer. This is also part of how it is that a body counts, is made to count, that, this is a, that, this, that the person's body who is being sensed by the system is a body that counts. That they are that their um, that their condition is relevant uh, to and must be included in the production of a viable model of the society. And and one of the things that epidemiology also I think points us to a little bit is that a viable model is one that cannot exclude those who are less powerful or have less access to resources and still be a viable model. That's not the way contagions work. That's not the way viruses work. Um, and so the inclusivity of the production of the model is is to everyone's is to everyone's and everyone's benefit. And again, it's this: I want to kind of collapse the high touch, high tech dichotomy here. Right. At the same time, go ahead, please jump in. No, 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 no. Go on. I'll I'll jump in in a sec. Oh, um, what that makes clear to me is that the language that we use to critique surveillance is not nearly high resolution enough to make sense of what's really at stake. That if we found ourselves in a position where all forms of comprehensive interventionist social sensing and modeling simulation are understood as some kind of variation of surveillance and all of its Foucauldian authoritarian connotations, then we have already, we've, we've already sort of argued ourselves out of a out of the position by which we might actually develop the positive and necessary vision for how these techniques and processes and platforms should be used. And so there's, a num there's also a considerable discussion in the book around um, other ways in which we might uh, open up this discussion, not to argue that surveillance is now good, but to argue that there, in fact, all of these forms of things cannot be reduced to simply this question of surveillance, that all of the political and social questions that we need to ask about this cannot be reduced to a kind of liberal individualist obsession with privacy, uh, with, with the protection of one's subjective boundaries. You know, many of my students at San Diego, when we were talking about this in a class that I sort of done, we had a very interesting kind of discussion where one of the students raised their hand and they said, you know, I, I just read Shoshana Zuboff's book and I'm, I, I'm against the testing. I'm against surveillance capitalism. This is going to, you know, I, I feel that this is a, 
you know, this is an uh, this is an overreach of this. And a number of the other students who came from parts of the county who don't have the same access to the same the same healthcare that this person did, saying actually for us the politics of this is is that we are not we are not counted that that our 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 bodily fluids, our persons, our experience are not included in this, not included in this model. This is also a politics of sensing and modeling that I think is, in many respects, um, probably more important for us to be focusing on than the kind of performative protection of sometimes fantastic uh, fantasies of individual autonomy. Uh, and 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 a kind of protected sense of one's uh, autonomous subjectivity. I mean, it's, I think it's it's really interesting that a student of yours picked picked up on this because I think it comes through in in the book quite um, in quite a few points that I think this this kind of epidemiological view of society is in in some ways it's quite it's quite totalizing and don't want to say totalitarian but it's quite totalizing in that it the the idea for it to be as effective as possible um it would need to i mean count everybody so there is a there i mean would you say there's a sort of sense in which this particular view of society is quite um anti-individualist is it is it is it quite you know quite collective um or how, how do you see that kind of tension um playing out i guess well, somebody who would say you know there's the, the the sovereign individual is is the starting point of society right they're wrong the, i mean they're already wrong the sovereign individual is not the starting point of society never was um and so it's not that i think that epidemiology is is puts us on a track that would lead in directions away from that idea i think reality puts us on a track that would lead away from right lead away from this idea um i i don't think that that it, it is i i would it does not. I, there's. A, I think that a, what would be a common misunderstanding or misinterpretation of what I'm putting forward would be one that would suggest that what I'm arguing for is that the more omniscient and omnipotent the model becomes, the better model it is. This is. Right. This is not the argument. I, I think that there's a sense that you know one of the kind of maybe one of the ways in which the kinds of propaganda on behalf of you know, corporate big data models and, and so forth has been put forward is that is that through omniscience we will get we will have perfect control. The critique of this is therefore that we don't want omniscience, we don't want perfect control. I, I'm not I'm suggesting neither. I'm suggesting that what constitutes a viable model, a viable model of a complex system does not need to be omniscient and omnipotent. It needs to be comprehensive and more importantly, it needs to be acted upon. And I think climate science, frankly, is probably you know just as good of an example here as epidemiology. Like we we have, let me just say it straightforward: the very idea of climate change, not the ecological fact, but the concept of climate change, is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation. Without planetary sensing and modeling and simulation infrastructure, the idea of climate change does not appear. That concept of planetarity that it implies does not appear. The problem that we have with climate science is not that it is not omniscient enough, that it is not you know, precise enough, that our, our data does not go out, doesn't go, goes out to 17 decimal points and it should go out to 37 decimal points. The right. problem is that we, we don't have the ability to act upon these models. These models have not become 
the basis for a kind of collective recursion. They have not become the medium through which we would recompose the thing that the models are modeling. That's the important point, that we would use epidemiology to provide for the model of the positive biopolitics that we may want, not that more computer, more better, not that you know higher granularity, more better, but clearly models that are not inclusive, that leave people out are models that will not work. Not only are they inequitable, they are, they are ineffective. So, I mean, I think the, you know, maybe putting to, to aside that, that, I mean, it's obviously an in, in, incredibly sort of central point around the, you know, you talk about planetary level competence a lot in the book and that kind of, I guess that kind of big, I was going to say big picture solution. Um, I, I put myself right, right into, to finishing the sentence like that, but, but I guess putting aside that kind of global solution, I wanted to dig a bit into some of the, um, I guess some of the middle chapters of the book where, you know, you sure. sort of take on some of the kind of more discrete issues as, of the politics of the pandemic, as you, you, you know, as we might call it. So in, in um, the chapter on touchlessness, for example, um, you take issue ah. with the with the idea that, um, quote, direct and unmediated touch is not only preferable to remote engagement, but that it is authentic in ways that mediated social relations can never be, unquote, saying that this leads to a, quote, disqualification of remote intimacy, and the remote intimacy is italicized, um, that societal scale healthcare demands, unquote. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably quite, um, uh, quite a st- sort of striking claim, um, perhaps for uh, for those of us who've who've spent some of the past fifteen months um, looking at, at Zoom screen, screens and um, you know, kind of being you know in a, in a much uh, more touchless uh, sort of sure. world uh, or, yeah. or, or more mediated yeah. world than we would have previously been. So yeah, could you just maybe kind of um, unpack that a little bit and say you know what is the role of this idea of touch or touchlessness in this epidemiological view of society developed in the book? Sure. Um, I'm look, we, we just opened up, you know, the economy, the cities, many ways just sort of opening up here again in California. And I am as anxious as everyone else to, you know, go out and start, you know, have kissing contests and, you know, hug everybody and lick doorknobs and everything else. It's, it's not, <laughs> I, my argument is not on behalf of like, it's great that we're all locked up in this way. What I'm, what, what I'm suggesting here, however, is really a kind of response to, um, what I see, uh, what, what I not just what I see, but I think was what is quite clearly um, a, 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 a tendency within uh, within within political philosophy, within humanities, within the arts, within within cultural thought more generally, to elevate the question of presence, uh, tactility, immediacy uh, as. As, as not only something that is, uh, you know, in a certain sense, sort of like affect, more affectively rich, and in, in a certain sense it is, but essentially as the pre, but instead to see it as the precondition of any kind of of of, of any kind of uh, properly uh, calibrated, properly imagined so, so, uh, structure of social structure of social relations, such that abstraction, uh, uh, you know, relations at a distance. Uh, the conditions of mediations between us and somewhere or another are a priori understood as being somehow more degraded, less authentic, less important, 
uh, less less visible. Uh, it, to me, this is where you know why the the kind of particular uh, bourgeois anarcho primitivism of the of the neighborhood farmers market comes to the fore as a way of really trying you know sort of thinking through a, a kind of performative imaginary of what society would would be like. But this is really not the way our social relations work. We we have it should be obvious social relations with people we will never meet, that the conditions of distantiated mediation, of technical mediation, uh, of economic mediation, of mediation of productions between people that we do not have direct contact with are important, that they are not secondary. And, and all of the, the later parts of the book where I talk about the, the, the politics of automation, and, and indeed part of the way in which the whole pandemic economy was able to survive was through platform automation, but and, and that except depends upon a kind of invisibilization of the work, uh, of, of the, the real human labor that go, of, of drivers and admins and, and warehouse workers that go into the, the supporting of this as well. Those social relations that we have, that people have with those people are just as real and just as important, just as central to our discussion about the construction of the city as the social relations you have with the, you know, the farmer who hands you an apple at the at the farmer's market, one one is in fact not more real than the other, um, and I think part of the I think part of the fetishization of immediacy and intimacy, on be, on behalf of those who can afford it, is part of the way in which that invisibilization is able to is able to ta- able to take place. Now, the second point that I, I I try to explain there's a few in this chapter, but the other one has to do with the, an interesting way. I think we've all probably experienced this to some extent. The way in which the shift of the urban interfaces, you know, restaurants and stores and public transportation towards these or or, or our homes, um, you know, where we might accept some of those deliveries, um, shifted towards these touchless uh, protocols, were ones in which, in in, in a strange way, the question of touch became itself foregrounded, became, you know, was made visible and intensely important in ways that it had been forgotten. That, you know, that there, that any public space is always about touch, but now that it must be touchless, this question of touch, what can I touch? What can I be touched by? Who can I be touched by? This refocuses our attention on the intensity um, of, of those moments of, of, of direct contact. And so in, in this way, this rotation towards touchlessness uh, allowed us to see touch in ways we'd forgotten. Yeah, just just to just to kind of push you a bit on this. I mean, do you think though mm-hmm. it kind of raised this question in a in a negative way? So, touch and proximity and intimacy, physical intimacy, and in, in terms of being you know physically close to to another person, these were all considered you know bad, dangerous, worrying, anxiety inducing. I mean, is is this a is this a danger that the the kind of you know it shifts. I don't know, completely in the other direction and touch is seen as a, as a danger and as actually um, not, a, not a less authentic social relationship, but a more, a more kind of risky, dangerous one. It is a risk. Yeah, I, I, I agree with this. And, and this is why I, I, and I certainly hope we, we don't go in this direction because I think this would be another kind of mystification. Uh, another kind of of a, a different kind of in, in inverse, a kind of different kind of paranoia, but one that that is in the image of the the first one that I kind of described. Um, and you know, I, I think there are lessons to be learned about how not to do that from a lot of different from different places. You know, one of the 
examples that I talk about in the book, and and I by no means wish to draw you know a direct parallel between these. So to do so would be you know inappropriate in a number of different ways. However, the role of, for example, the the, the political role of prophylactics uh, in the way in which the 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 gay community dealt with the um, the the AIDS epidemic uh, some decades ago, where a kind of embrace of the prophylactic, not just as um, as some as a technology of not just as a, you know itself a technology of touchlessness, but something that would enable the continuance and and indeed the intensification of intimacy with the full knowledge of the of, of one of of the conditions of biological interrelation that are that are that are at work there. Uh, and and th- this kind of uh, you know I, I think this kind of maneuver is one that is 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 shows that th- this the scenario that you describe is by no means uh, where we all have to end up, but mm-hmm. even that what what that allowed for what was is what I call the kind uh, I kind of shifted what I call the ethics of an object. Yeah, uh, and that is that. So actually, if you could maybe just oh, oh, explain this a little bit, actually that's probably what you were literally just about to do, um, but yeah. Please. Oh, sure. So, and, and, and in a certain sense, this connects with the mask wars. Like, there's, I think, some of the, the at least, you know, the, certainly here in the United States and in other parts of the world, the, the mask became a flashpoint within culture wars uh, in ways that are were quite startling, uh, really. Um, one of the ways in which I think part of the, the, the we were limited by the development of, of a more of a, of a social ethical vocabulary that would have allowed us to deal with the complexity of the pandemic um, much more expeditiously was what was is based on the a habit of thinking that the question of ethics is based on the expression the external expression of an internal moral mental state. That is, I have a subjective sense of my goodwill towards you, uh, and because I have this intern, I have this well calibrated subjective sense of my internal goodwill towards you. I will manifest this externally, and I will cause goodness to you know occur in our in our interrelations. And right. the goodness that comes from our interrelations is itself a kind of uh, an externalization of this internal mental state. This subjectivization of the question of ethics. I mean, obviously, there's you know reasons for this, but it doesn't work when we're talking about these kinds of contexts. It doesn't work in the context of an epidemic. It doesn't work in the context of lots of things. Um, but what I'm suggesting is then the development of the the development and construction of a different kind of ethical vocabulary. Uh, and disposition that would be based on on understanding oneself not as a kind of uh, moral subject, but rather as an object, let's say, an ethics of an object that can do harm or good irrespective of one's subjective moral intention. That is, when I wear the mask, when I wear a mask and I go out into the world and I, I, I do so based on the understanding that it doesn't matter whether I like this person or don't like this person, whether or not I do them harm by infecting them with a with influenza or with a virus is iris- it has nothing to do with this objective intention. It has only to do with my biological person and my and their you know the condition of transmission and an understand and therefore as an object as this biological object, 
I have an ethical responsibility to participate in this immunological commons in such a way that I would mitigate the potential of harm towards my towards uh, towards uh, towards uh, other people, strangers, strangers, or, yeah. or strangers or friends. Um, and this shift towards a, a self understanding of self of, of ethical self objectivization in this way is also one of the things that I mean by this revenge of the real, not just at a big, massive global structural scale, but also at the scale of how every one of us participates in the world around us. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, you know, it's a very, very striking chapter, the ethics of, of being an object. And, you know, you, you mentioned in, you know, in what you were just saying, this idea of the immunological commons and that wearing a mask actually communicates solidarity with that in, in the way that you you frame it and they, that you know potentially could could bring something of the subjective element um back in i mean i think you know we could talk about any one of these um questions for 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 the whole duration of, of an episode i think but i wanted to kind of move move you on a little bit to talk about um some of the some of the thinkers who who pop up uh well, not pop up but who kind of underlay oh yeah some of the um yeah some of the analysis and particularly foucault um, so we've got a question coming up on Agamben, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to him in a, in a, in a, in a second. Um, but All right. yeah, but I mean, so Foucault, three of his ideas, um, case, risk and, and danger um, seem particularly, or in, you know, in the way that I read it, um, particularly important to the, the model that you, you kind of develop of this kind of medical governance could you just maybe expand a little bit on this? What what influence has Foucault's work had on you um, and your and I guess your uh, reading of the pandemic? Because you know everyone's talking about him at the moment for good for, for a whole range yeah. of reasons. We maybe don't need to go into his into his personal life in this particular context. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I think, like many people, you know, Foucault's work was deeply formidable on my own intellectual development, though. At, that it, it taken in a both positive and negative sense. And that is, there are ways in which my own, you know, my own ideas, my own sort of intellectual architecture is, is indebted to foundations that he set forward. It's also constructed in certain extents in, in an attempt to invert or, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, in a way to sort of to correct or evade uh, what I see as Problems in the in the kind of in the construction of his, of his projects, the genealogies and the and the archaeologies themselves. Um, so it's it's fraught, honestly. Um, you know, at this point in time, I, I you know I, I I'm become I have to say that, and I'll admit this, I'm becoming increasingly exasperated with the influence of what I call boomer theory. Uh, okay. on the on the continuance of the political discourse of, of the tw of the 21st century a kind of post 68 um, Europeanist uh, perspective um, that that were you know came that were born of a particular historical moment Sorry, um, just to, just in to, which just just to go ahead. jump in there who are some of these kind of key yeah. boomers not without you know naming names um but you might have to to a certain oh, extent the, no who sure are, i mean all of who are some of the uh, <laughs> boomer theorists every everyone i teach with the european graduate school uh everyone uh, well, so look, i'm, I'm part of this too like I, I, no 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 i'm 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 being i'm just playing along with the with the, having some fun um i i 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm I count myself among this to a, cer- to a certain kind of certain kind of degree. But sure, the you know Foucault and uh, Lacan and the continuance of, of the Heideggerian uh, Derridian mm-hmm. tradition, um, the uh, the way in which uh, you know certain, uh, any number of psychoanalytic and, and feminist discourses that have grown up, grown up around this, all of which I have to say is like have been enormously and continue to be enormously influential I, I, and, and 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 interesting and important. It's I'm, I'm not trying to make a kind of blanket dismissal of an entire sort of you know uh, you know wiping away a kind of body of work uh, and or in, in any in any respect. Uh, and I also think a lot of this work is sort of is 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 disingenuously misinterpreted uh, for a lot of uh, uh, nefarious purposes. What I am exhausted by, um, I have to say, is, is the, the kind of persistence of, of, the, of, of the particular moment in which there was an understanding of sort of the world is organized in ways that are rigid and hierarchical and, rash, and overly rational and instrumentalized. And that the, that the permanent project of philosophy and politics is to is to deconstruct and to undermine and to disengage and to deterritorialize uh, uh, and to produce uh, uh, produce conditions in which politics can be understood as something that exists without authorship and without authority. And to me, this idea of a politics evacuated of any sense of compositionality, of any sense of order giving, of any sense of authorship is not politics. It is the definition of the post-political. Mm. The idea that society cannot, that everything can be the love parade forever, that Chaz is anything but a a risable sideshow. This has, the problem as I see it is not so much for me, but for, I see a generation of of really intensely intelligent and engaged people born after 1989, right? After Tianmen and after the fall of the Berlin Wall, who are left with a vocabulary that that you know they should be working with a vocabulary of how to compose the next world after this generation of boomers finally dies they're left instead with a vocabulary like the boomers last revenge is to leave them with nothing but a vocabulary for further deterritorialization absent of any positive kind of project this is something that this is the side of Foucault that I am you know happy you know be happy to um happy to that if people were to graduate from to a certain extent um, there's a whole other side of Foucault about his, in, you know, his focus on the ways in which tech, but power is embedded in technical systems. That power is that eight positions of agency are constructed socio-technically. Uh, that they are that they are that, that all of these kinds of positions. That in, the individuation is a function of these socio-technical systems produced by it, and not a not a precedent. That it that it's it's through Foucault that this this earlier question of isn't the sovereign individual the building block of society is utterly annihilated. And for this, I will be you know, forever grateful for his contribution. Okay, so we've got, we've got kind of two, two sides there, the, the boomer uh, side, uh, or boom, boomer Foucault, and uh, the kind of anti- individual anti kind of sovereign individualist um Foucault but to move on to to another Foucauldian um uh, yeah I can't really finish the interview without asking you about your reading of Agamben who's um <laughs> so Giorgio Agamben the Italian um, sure. philosopher 
um, who's who's also uh, you know deeply influenced by by Foucault. And I I, I don't think we've probably yes. got the time to to kind of get into Agamben's reading of the pandemic. Um, you know, hopefully we'll do this in a, in another in another show. Um, but as a bit of a summary for our for our listeners in his. Um, where are we now? The epidemic is politics, which is a collection of his pandemic writings. Um, Agamben describes the model of governance, which is probably not a million miles away from the one that you've kind of sketched out as a, quote, technological sanitationist despotism, unquote. So I guess one one thing I'm interested in is how, like, I mean, I'm sorry, was that was that a, was that was that Agamben or was that Alex Jones? No, that was that was uh, that was was a gambon, um, and that was in yeah. I think it's um, it's my question would be how, I mean, if you, you well, you might or might not accept that you start in in similar points, but how did I guess you and he come to be on you know very opposing sides in terms of their in terms of your reading of the pandemic? Um, you know, just by a sure. No, I, 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 I yeah, no, I, I, and exactly right. Besides the fact that we come from, we use for in these different kind of ways. So I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to this, and I, and I do think it's worth going into detail, going to a little bit of depth with this with your listeners. And I, I should say that, look, the, it, one need not agree with everything that I have to say and my own perspective on this, which I, I understand is, is to a certain extent a bit, uh, uh, you know, that, that might not be so obvious in, in, in some regards. To also come to the conclusion, however, that that Giorgio Agamben's particular remarks about the pandemic are, are are absurd and possibly dangerous, possibly insane, but deeply reactionary in every negative negative sense negative sense of the word, um, uh, and that they lay bare uh, in some respects not just the not just the ravings of an old, of a of a, of a bitter old man, but more, more importantly than that, just uh, than anything person than, than this is that is that the way in which that they they kind of disclose the inadequacy of an entire school of thought uh, around uh, a critical biopolitics that uh, ha- that has grown up around his ideas and which and which yields considerable soft power uh, in the humanities and in the content uh, the continental philo- in continental philosophy and so. And to conclude, therefore, that the whole notion of biopolitics needs a, needs a reboot. Um, but just to just to be clear, for some of you who might not be familiar, and I, and I won't go into you know try to won't go into too much details. You sort of to said because I think a lot of this is online. But you know, Agamben is this Italian, you know, as you know, is Italian philosopher known for his under you know his sort of very uh, strident, uh, anti secular, anti scientific, uh, anti state. Um, positions around the nature of what it is to be human, about the proper role of the human in society, the proper role of tradition and language and power within society, um, and you know his ideas of the state of exception, of the camp, uh, of the nomos, and so forth were very influential, particularly after uh, during the you know in the years after 9/11. Uh, he wrote a series of essays that were published uh, around the world. I, I, you, you may have a better count of them than I do, um, in which he basically starts off by calling the the, the entire pandemic uh, a hoax, uh, that it was invented by uh, the, the kind of tech, the secular techno medical order, uh, as you said, to introduce a kind of a kind of despot, a kind of despotism. Um, arguing against the, the the mask mandates, are really arguing in many cases against the entire premise of modern epidemiological science as really anything other than a degradation 
of the of the body to the status of mere object. Uh, and he, you know, he concludes with this, with this, uh, uh, you know, even with basically comparing those uh, those professors who 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 decided to continue their students' education by by working with them over Zoom to uh, those those who acquiesced to the Nazi Party in Germany in in, in the 1930s. Uh, no joke. Like it, it, there's, it, you almost, it's like almost, you can't make this up. Mm. Um, and so, it, by, I'll just say it wasn't, yeah. it, let me just make this last point. Then we move on. It wasn't just me for, for God's sake. Like I am not the only, somehow the person who sort of like pointed to this and said like, my God, what is going on here? It was also, uh, you know, his friend, Jean-Luc Nancy, the French philosopher, also, you know, friend we have, I found in common who immediately wrote a reply saying, look, don't listen to him, you know, Basically, you know, saying saying that you know that if I had listened to him when I was contemplating getting a heart transplant, and Agamemnon told me not to, uh, I would be dead. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's been a number of other people who have written about like what what has gone on here, and what does what does this mean for the way in which the question of biopolitics has been constructed in the humanities and philosophy, and uh, where do we go from here? And so, uh, I, you know, m- my response to this was probably more. Uh, was more direct and precise, but I certainly wasn't the only person who uh, was raising these concerns. Yeah, so I think just to kind of, because it's a, yeah, it's a shame that we don't really have you know an, an agam a Gambian. I don't know what the word would be um, to kind of you know to, to stake out that position. But I think what what kind of emerges out of that that kind of um, reading that you have of Agamben and obviously throughout the whole book is this, this idea of positive biopolitics. And this, I think is, you know, this, you know, to kind of finish on this, this particular concept, because I think in some ways it's a good, it's a good summary yeah. of, of, of a lot of the, the political kind of implications of, of, of what I would take to be, you know, essentially the position that you, you put forward in the, in the, um, in the book. So, yeah. So, could you maybe just explain this for for our listeners because i think when when you hear this phrase positive biopolitics i mean you may yeah. or may not have read some some foucault but it but it, you know the experience of being in the pandemic and having you know having a needle stuck in your arm to having your kind of movement constrained right. perhaps all these things which which you know don't aren't necessarily experienced as positive um yeah so maybe just kind of could you elaborate on that? A oh, I see. Bit? Because yeah. it's not, it's not, I don't think it's a kind of probably an immediately intuitively accessible idea for people. Um, so yeah, what, what do you mean by positive biopolitics? Sure. And, no, yeah. and, you know, where, where does this lead? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I, the obvious, at least so the, the, the way in which it's meant in the book is, is as a, as a, an inversion of what the, the Agambenian tradition of a negative biopolitics would have been, which is biopolitics as meant to be something to be always uh, resisted, uh, in essence, that there is a kind that that one's own, you know, one's own individual body, one's own traditional sense of the human and community has a kind of sacred invulnerability, uh, and that all forms of secular, technologically mediated medical reason are are either implicitly or explicitly some kind of form of totalitarian capture and dehumanization. And what I'm, and, and a positive biopolitics would provide uh, then a kind of different vision uh, for that. But one in which no, it has uh, it really has to do with how it is that, that, that you know Medicare for all is a vision of positive biopolitics. The NHS is a vision of positive biopolitics. You know vaccines and in, in uh, you know free vaccine programs are a method of positive biopolitics. But 
if I could answer the question, because I think it's probably, let me answer it in two ways. One is that there's a, a way in which we can think about a positive biopolitics at a kind of structural, uh, institutional or policy level. And then there's a way in which we can think about more like what's really at stake though for this, like what, what, what's in the big picture, what's really at stake for that. So the first one was easier, but it still maybe seem impossible to a certain extent, but it would, first of all, it would depend upon a kind of economics that enables um, the universal availability of some kind of inclusive capacity for, for co-immunization um, that is that works regardless of geographic clustering. That is that, that is ultimately, as I would would have it, that is that is not predicated on the idea that once there's a pandemic, everybody has to zoom back to their go back to their country of passport uh, in order for this. That, that that there's a different relationship between infrastructure, uh, infrastructure and access. Two, that it would distribute risk in such a way that the the relationship between the collective and individual exposure and responsibilities are. Are, are, are actually are actually properly uh, properly aligned. Um, three, that it would have to function regardless of, in essence, who's in power. Like regardless, it cannot be dependent upon the moral performance of its participants or by those who you know operating you know particular kinds of seats of power. And this is why I talk about it a little bit more in terms of kinds of infrastructures, in terms of biopolitical stacks that include technologies and people and processes and and, and services. That, that that is constructed ultimately at the scale of, of planetary society itself. That doesn't mean that it has to be one giant centralized system, but it has to be something that is not dependent upon these sort of recidivist forms of nativism and localism uh, in order for it to work, that that simply won't work. Now, the second part, I'll, I'll try to go quickly though, but is, you know, I think what really matters here and what really is at stake for is the way in which biotechnologies are a way and have been for centuries, a way in which we, you know, what our intelligence, you know, all the different kinds of we's that we are, deliberately remake the human in some kind of way. And this question of what it means to be human and how we care for ourselves is something that is not just a matter of technology, it is a matter of, of, of for philosophy, it's a matter for ethics, it's a matter for, for policy. And so, you know, when someone like the Jamaican-born uh, philosopher Sylvia Winter uh, talks about, you know, asks us to, you know, interrogate who counts as a human in colonial modernity. This opens up this category to a kind of reclamation. That's a positive biopolitics. So, so we understood how we would define biopolitics, but mm. okay, please go ahead. I have a few no, more no, I'd like I, to say, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I guess just just in, to kind of make it more more concrete in terms of, I guess the sort of. The sort of, um, I guess, policy, policies is, is not ex not exactly the right way to frame it, but like, what 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 sort of po uh, political project does does this kind of bio positive biopolitics um, uh, lead to? Because I think you in in the book you you sketch out a quite a kind of vivid um, picture of this kind of hourly quantification of bodily fluids and then quick testing in Mexico through PMC subscription services, annual flu vaccination drives and the politics around that, automated delivery services and labor struggles around automation, urban architecture yeah. designed around touchlessness, yes. smart masks from Apple yeah. and, and Nike. I mean, is this where the, <laughs> the positive biopolitics model um, goes? I mean, what what how do you see this as kind of... Um, what does it look like practically, I guess, is the question. 
No, okay. So no, the, the the sort of scenario that you described there at the end is is meant as a bit of a of a of a, a kind of warning, not as a model of where we would sort of to go. That it's it's meant to describe that 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 passage concludes with this that like what I'm more worried about in a certain respect is everything kind of goes back to normal and we don't learn anything from this. That we will have wasted a year and a half of people's lives, uh, you know, muddling through various policy, various incompetent populist policy failure one after another uh, and that we are and that we learn nothing from this and so what does the world look like in which we've learned nothing from it and that's what that passage at the end is meant to is meant to sort of elucidate in advance what what, what the reader right. might conclude after reading this is not wow I hope that doesn't happen but rather that is that's already happened like that that is the present and so that's a bit of the lesson to this as well um but again I mean I be happy to talk a little bit further, but but the the real answer to your question about what what the political project of a biopolitical bio pro, politics has to do with is the engagement with the underlying biological reality, basically the physical materiality of the world as something that is at once uh, indifferent, innegotiable, indifferent to our symbolic projections upon it. That 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 cathartic narratives will not work, and that politics based on this is not. Going to, is, is not a path to, to, to anywhere we want to go, but that even for this physical under the, even for its materiality and its physicality, it's indifferent. It is not, it is changeable. It is mutable. It is transformable. It is real, but it is not quote unquote nature. It has everything to right. do with what, not just what humans is, but what humans can be and how we can transform ourselves in relationship to this. This is the larger project. So I guess, you know, just to, to, to wrap it up as a kind of, you know, fine end of, you know, I don't want to sort of repeat the same question, but I think it's just, um, so that's quite a, that's quite a lofty, a lofty aim to kind of re remake what, what humans are, which, you know, not, not necessarily one that I would uh, disagree with, but I think that, you know, what, what comes through in the, um, in the course of the book and kind of some of the more proximate political struggles is the, is, you know, the ways in which I think a positive and I might be misreading you here, of course, but the ways in which a positive biopolitics is 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 sort of a or could be aligned with a, a certain sort of de, you know, a more touchless society, a society where where masks are perhaps you know semi permanent or or perhaps maybe permanent, where that kind of ethics of object of being an object leads to a kind of undermining almost of this you know the subjectivity of 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 people and their kind of ability to act and take you know to take political responsibility and engage in kind of you know political um projects so i guess the you know what's what's uh, the no, what's the next uh, uh, yeah, uh, let, yeah let, let me answer let me answer, answer your question by re by re reorganizing the re-answer re okay. your question by reorganizing your question in a very specific way the way which is like is 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 if on the one hand, like one column, we have people wearing masks and there is touchlessness. And on the other column, we have a sense of agency and subjectivity and the possibility of political transformation or something like it. it, it like part of the part of the argument trying to make is like, no, this we, this is the wrong sort of categorization that the, the, the question that the intensification of the intensification of subjective narrativization and the organization of, of the logic of society around this intensification of this sub subject is the thing that makes it so we can't change anything. 
that the question of, of, of understanding oneself as an object, of understanding that the underlying reality, that the, the reality bats last, and that the physicality of the world is indifferent to that, those subjective symbolizations, number one, and two, that therefore it is open to transformation at, at the level of the molecule, at the level of the body, at the level of the city, at the level of the climate, that it is plastic and transmutable. The objectivity is the condition of transformation. The subjectivity is the condition of the, is the condition of a kind of, is the kind of recursive, uh, recursive echo chamber in which we find ourselves. Now, as I see it, just to be clear, because I'm sure it was like, lockdowns are a policy failure. Lockdowns are, the, are what happens when a society does not have a plan. The reason we had this lockdown for a year and a half is not because, and it's like, what in the future, what, like, this is like, lockdowns are what happens when we have no ability to sense what, what's going on with the epidemic, with the pandemic. So we have to do this blanket lockdown because it's the only thing left to do. And so we have, like, it was had to be done because the, because the real policies that should have been in place to deal with this were not in place. And, and the reasons for that are, the reasons for that are, are, are manifold. Um, whether we need to wear masks kind of in the future. I think what one of the things that I, I hope does, does stick with us from, from this as well is a shifting understanding of, of the, our understanding of our own personal individual relationship to the city, to society, our understanding of ourselves as a biological creature that's entangled and enmeshed with all other kinds of forms of this, a different sense, not just of immunization, but of recomposition of other ways in which it could be other than this. Uh, and so just to emphasize this point, it's the, the objectivity is the path to transformation. Subjectivity is the path towards a kind of, you know, st spending the rest of our lives yelling at each other in a funhouse mirror. I think that's a, a suitably kind of challenging uh, point on 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 which to to finish. So yeah, just to say um, thanks very much for uh, for being with us this evening, Ben. It's been my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I mean, I've been a you know been listening to the podcast quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, it was you know was very happy to get the invitation, but even before I had people have been sending me episodes and uh, you know really you know very much enjoy the the discourse that you guys are developing. So I appreciate the opportunity to be part of it. All right, listener, you've just been listening to George Hoare interviewing Benjamin Bratton. And now it's the three of us, myself, Alex, George, and Phil, who... That sounded like four people. It kind myself, of Myself, Alex. <laughs> I'm going to do that again. No, it's fine. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's, fine. Right, so it's, it's, it's schizophrenic. It it's... <laughs> okay. And now it's the three of us, myself, Alex, Phil, and... Again! Again! Four myself, people! Myself, my Alex. No! <laughs> this, I'm... Anyway, there's three of us, one of whom is myself... <laughs> <laughs> who is called Alex, <laughs> Philip Conliffe, and George Hoare. And we're recording this a couple of days after interviewing, after George interviewed Benjamin Bratton to discuss a little bit about what we learned. And I guess to start this off, we're going to ask George. George, why did you want to interview Benjamin? Because you, you read the book, you were yep. interested in having him on. So why don't you tell us, you know, what you thought of it and what was yeah, your what was the rationale? Yeah, so, I mean, I thought it was a, a quite an, an extraordinary book. I read it in a, a couple of a couple of sittings, um, I think. And yeah, so what I found particularly interesting is that it takes this idea of 
biopolitics, which is often, I guess, thought of as a critical concept and sort of flips that on its, on its head and, you know, talking about positive biopolitics. It's not something that I thought I would probably come across, but in, in reading it, it seemed an encapsulation, a description of um, the way that governments across the world have, have been handling the pandemic. Um, I guess whether it's a whether it's a critical kind of engagement with that or, or more of a kind of positive project I think is something that came out in the in the interview but certainly what I was interested in was here is a here is somebody who who's taking Foucault's ideas and and applying them um, and isn't uh, a Gambon so I'd, I'd read a Gambon's book as well and thought yeah this could be an interest interesting to have a kind of you know to have Benjamin's position and then maybe have a an, a Gambinian as well on at some point to, to kind of have both sides of that I mean thinking a little bit more about the about the whole thing on the one hand I think there's some aspects of what he was saying that are just you know frankly deeply creepy so the idea of kind of sweeping away the notion of society as uh, being comprised of individual decision makers mm. in favor of this idea of society the reality as he puts it of the fact that we're an interdependent biological community that kind of vision of society you know like I mean that is deeply creepy so but on the other hand on the other hand when he says you know he kind of made the case about the um, the uh, illusion of privacy you know so you're kind of stuck on the one hand between um, the case that he wants to make and he kind of uh, attacked the um, Shosh- uh, Shoshana Zuboff yeah. idea of restoring the idea that it's kind of viable or possible to restore a pristine liberal notion 18th century notion of privacy in the context of um, enormously powerful kind of uh, data surveillance in the context of these enormously powerful corporations and organizations and institutions and all of this and i think you know there is a there is a contradiction there i don't think it's soluble by thinking of society in terms of being a biological community i mean you know you've got to really think when you hear that phrase you've got to think a bit mm, about yeah talk you know think before you talk maybe but um nonetheless you know there is a i don't i think he's right his suspicions of the idea that it's um possible to restore that um kind of uh, pristine liberal idea and the way he criticized it as the kind of fantasy of the um the farmer's market vision mm, of society yeah. you know he's he, he had a point so i mean like i i think I'm listening to it the first time through, like kind of accompanying George during the interview, but, you know, just as a passive participant, I guess. Um, I really struggled to get what it was getting at, I think. Mm. You know, I just found it, I found it, I found it a little bit difficult to, to follow. On listening to it the second time, I was like, okay, I get what you're getting at. And at an abstract level, I can agree with some parts and not others. But I think just intuitively or, or kind of immediately, you kind of go, yeah, but like... I don't want more control, you know, yeah. you know, yeah, like I'm, I'm, you know, you're, you're feeling the lockdown and you're going, well, I don't want more of this. And he is, he says, this is, this is not what we want yeah. more of. So, but. yeah, I mean, I guess one, one thing probably to say about the interviews that I was having, having obviously read the book, I was very keen to, for him to sort of lay out what this theory is and, you know, some of the implications, some of the, I guess some of the, the turns of phrase or some of the the kind of conclusions that, that come out, this ethics of being an object, for example, I think at one of the same can, can time... You, can you explain what that yeah. is again, like back to us? Because yeah. I'd be interested in like, because I, I don't know if I understood it. So what, what did yeah, you take yeah. from it? So I, I just thought it was the idea that in this traditional model of ethics where you're a subject and you make decisions and you're held accountable for them, um, 
has been replaced, should be replaced. I think there's an amb- ambiguity there um, by the fact that you uh, we're in a, situa- a situation at the moment where ethical decisions seem to be based, at least in part, on this idea that you can transmit something, i.e. COVID, to, to other people, whether you want to or not. So the subjective aspects of morality are out of the window and we're just uh, you know we're kind of we bump up against people in in social interactions and we you know and we have to take into account that we're that we're objects transmitting diseases i mean personally that's not i think that is something that needs to be pushed back against in quite you know in but i think that has captured something about the way that moral decisions have increasingly been framed and i haven't read any uh, other a sophisticated account of of like what is the thinking behind that um, but that's that seems to me the way that people are, are kind of framing interactions. Like but, it doesn't matter if you want to infect people, you will do. So therefore, you've got to act accordingly. Because he does say one thing, which I thought resonated, where it's like this idea of doing good. You know, effectively, ethic ethical conduct is. You know, if you think you're doing good, then you know that's that's what is important, right? Hmm. And he's right that in a pandemic, thinking that you're doing good is nonsense. I mean, it, it's completely irrelevant, right? Because you might be transmitting the disease even though you're wearing a mask, but if you're wearing a mask which is inadequate or not wearing it properly or maybe whatever, that's... Mm. It, so I think in, in that regard, moving it away from kind of intentions and, you know, your personal kind of intent and, and looking at it kind of more holistically and going, okay, what actually works? What makes sense here? What is the good here? And, uh, you know, looking at kind of... Yeah, trying to, trying to incorporate everybody who might be affected right so not what you have now where for example you know you have a lockdown which supposedly um, stops the spread and is for everybody but actually there are people who are out there working and being exposed right hmm. so that hit the notion that he's advancing would seem to militate against that and look at it a bit more you know society-wide i'm not sure so i think i mean the problem is surely that it is the kind of the institutional bureaucratic vision of um of society in the sense that it by treating individuals as kind of passive objects to be managed rather than um, whose kind of capacity can be engaged that it, the product is um, the authoritarian one that we have which mm. he wanted to distance himself from right but um you know I mean it seems to me that it the the lockdown governed by kind of um, middle class passivity uh, for those who work you know the middle classes who work on zoom get to stay at home and everybody else has to work um, that seems to me that is treating people as objects well, because it's in the, the inability to govern. But we, if, yeah, by... but if we if we disagree, if we were to disagree with that, and I think you know it's quite possible to do that. What's the alternative model? Like, what is the? There is a link between the the, the reality of the massive demobilization of at least substantial parts of society and this way of thinking about ethical decisions and it seems to me like that's captured that captures the mood or no not the mood it captures the underlying logic um of lockdowns as a response to the pandemic so but but i think that but you're stuck between and i think he's trying to what i found in his approach was quite brave it's like no we, the, way, the way out is through, right? We need to kind of go beyond what we have now and not just try to roll back to something that we had before, right? And this is what, like, Phil, you were saying in, re- in reference to, um, you know, trying to reclaim an 18th century notion of individual subjectivity or personhood or whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. You can't go back. So, the, but the, the, the choice that actually is in front of us without talking about any other 
future alternatives, right, that, which is what Bratton's advancing, is one between individual responsibilization, right, you're just, you just worry about yourself, and therefore, that would be the sort of anti-lockdown position, right, a libertarian position, or the, or the pro-lockdown position where it's just authoritarian and cack-handed way of going about things. And Bratton goes, well, there's a third option, right, that, that it's neither of those. And the passivity passivity kind of inheres both in the libertarian account, which is just an individualist one, and the authoritarian state-led one, and that there's maybe a, a, a more active form, I think. Yeah, so I think the, the real, I mean, the real solution is to, is the transformation of those institutions, right? So yeah. of the state and of these enormously powerful, um, these enormously powerful organizations, private corporations, for the most part, um, and large kind of uh, state security agencies. It's the transformation of those institutions rather than the um, rather than kind of radicalizing this idea of us essentially as just biological beings. Think, yeah, the biological think, yeah. thing was was kind of creepy. You know, I was like the that the starting point of society isn't the individual. I think that's right. Society pre-exists the. The, the individual or you know society makes individual individualism possible but the the fact that it's like he says in a biological terms was yeah I, yeah so i mean i i think the reason you know to why i was particularly interested in doing this and you know if listeners didn't like it don't like it then you know send me uh send me the the, um, the hate mail or whatever you know my i will take i, I second that i, I will second take, george's suggestion you know, there. Th- you know i'm gonna get thrown out the bio tower. bio warfare in the post yeah i w- actually don't do that um <laughs> but i yeah i will get thrown out the tower to the to the to the mob um but i think it you know ab- as you were saying for but ab- that transformation is required but absent that transformation what is the i think the logic of the current situation I think it's leading towards the sort of model that he that he articulates, and whether you whether you find that a desirable or not desirable description of a of a certain sort of society way of seeing society, way of seeing ourselves and other people, um, or not, I think that is the the I was going to say direction of travel, but uh, yeah, that's essentially what we're what we're moving towards. Um, but so. I guess it isn't isn't his approach then? Look, you're getting biopolitics whether you like it or not. So you can either have positive yeah. biopolitics or not. And trying to go back to a, a world in which states were less powerful and didn't kind of govern life and death in the same way, you're not getting that. So. Well, I mean, this is this I think is the um, the next the next step of this conversation is like get somebody who's who's much more critical of this idea of biopower. That's the the antithesis, and then you know bring bring those two together. You got you got a synthesis cooking really there. You can kind of you can see what why they're looking at me like like that wasn't clever, but I <laughs> I know that it was, so I'm going to stand by it. No, but I think that's you know this is the point. Like we we have I think the reality of biopolitics is think, is that is something that we we're we're at at the moment. Yeah, but I don't think but staging. What, what are the different positions? I don't think staging that? confrontations between different visions of biopolitics. Is a way to clarify. Um, is a way to clarify the choices before us. So I think the problem is why not is biopolitical itself. So to see to see out to see um, you know the biopolitical paradigm, thinking of society as a biological community, um, and thinking of people as objects rather than as subjects is not. It's you don't need the alternative viewpoints within that framework to to see that it's defective. No, may well. I you might might not be right, um, but I still think there's a value to to informing our listeners about some of the um, some of the theoretical positions. 
because I do think the last 15, 18 months, however long it's been now, can't even remember, has had a really profound impact on the way that we understand society. This epidemiological view of society has become a lot more widely accepted, a lot more kind of commonly confronted, and that is going to have... Yeah, it's going to be institutionalised. The biosecurity state will be institutionalised. How do you critique that? How yeah. do you, you know, but that is from what position but, do you do that? And that is a serious question. And I don't like have a an answer to that immediately because, you know, as I was just saying before, like, and this is something that I felt as soon as it came to Britain is like just this hostility to the lockdowns and all the restrictions and the apps and the everything else. Right. But then at a kind of more political level, if I'm thinking beyond just my own libertarian instinct to say, you know, fuck you. Uh, is like, well, yeah, but it needs to be something more than just a pure defense of my own bodily sovereignty and autonomy, you know, which which if you f- pursue that line, then, you know, you, you shouldn't get vaccinated. You shouldn't you should reject all measures yeah. to deal with the pandemic. And I don't think that's I but think I think the there's something in that. But yeah, I, though, I mean, I think the I mean, my the, my takeaway from the pandemic is that it really it kind of uh, scrambles the idea of, you know, so on the one hand, you have people who, you know, think of the collective, think of the greater good, wear your mask, get vaccinated and behave, you know, maintain social distancing at all times. And on the other hand, you have the people who are skeptical, um, maybe, you know, skeptical of uh, the overbearing state, of all the virtue signaling, of all the kind of the new kind of biological etiquette, maybe, you know, kind of uh, sympathetic to one or two of the conspiracy theories about the Great Reset. Or maybe, you know, and maybe see that it's maybe, um, you know, that the Great Reset is not a conspiracy theory or whatever. I don't know. The point is, I think what really the real lesson of the pandemic is not to endorse either of those two positions, but the interdependence between them. Because for me, what has been most striking is the fact that the, um, it's really the, I mean, what I suppose what the pandemic teaches, I think, and the lockdown in particular teaches is that really, you know, individual individual liberties are dependent on um, on a certain vision of society and society doesn't function unless you have um, individuals that are able to behave in certain ways, um, you know, that their civil liberties are guaranteed. You can't have a fun- you can't have a society that can respond effectively to the pandemic that's in lockdown. And so I think, you know, that's it doesn't seem to me to endorse either a kind of collectivist or a libertarian position, but rather to mm. expose mm. the interdependence of individual freedom and yeah. and a kind of functioning society. Because the, the phony collectivism that we have currently governing the, the, the situation in in Europe um, is a kind of antisocial one. Right. Yeah. And it's authoritarian. But the libertarian one, the libertarian response to that is very often antisocial itself as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, yeah, I think that's a good a good way to put it, that you have, on the one hand, a kind of antisocial collectivism and then a kind of... I don't know if it's antisocial libertarianism or certainly, like, not particularly pro-social and not particularly pro, um, pro-liberty. I just want to pull out one extra bit because mm. I, although we were sceptical of maybe what he says or we're unclear about what kind of picture he's painting or wary that it might lead to more biopolitics of, of a not good kind, even though he wants a positive biopolitics. One bit I really liked was his point about boomer theory, which I thought was quite spot yeah. on about how we're still living uh, in the world of no, that the new was left. Exactly right. Yeah. 
Um, and so his argument there, just to remind uh, listeners, though, you've just listened to this, you know, maybe it was about half an hour ago that you heard this, you'll probably remember, um, is that, you know, this sort of anti-normative, anti-authority position, which is uh, the hallmark of all the kind of boomer theory post-68 thinking, ends up being post-political, effectively. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, that's, and that's, I think, completely correct. And th- but Foucault is a boomer theorist, right? I mean, yeah. he's a Foucault... I mean, you know, he's doing biopolitics, which is taken from Foucault, and he is, Foucault is the archetypal boomer theorist. Yeah, he's boomer, boomer theorist number one. There's a good book called The Seventh Function of Language by Lauren Bonet, which uh, Foucault features in, and... Um, well, well worth a read. And what, what's what's the point of the book? The point what's the, the point of the reference? More to the point. It's just to to tell our listeners that 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 of oh, this book exists, and you can read a, a fictionalized account of Foucault if you're interested in in that. And it's you know sometimes reading a fiction can be you know broadening your mind. Not you don't okay. just have to read. That's that's your fine. That's fine. Dry but, academic journals. But what is what is the point of what is the point yeah, that you're dropping getting at? a random reference about Foucault into that's, a conversation. If I had been actually allowed to make my make my point rather than just being attacked, assaulted, etc. Um, it's that you you see. It's in the eight, so it's basically set in the the late in the early eighties, and you see all of these um, boomer theorists in the French context come together, and you can see their their uh, foibles fictionalized. Um, mm. Yes, it's about the it's about the, the the death of Roland Barthes and whether it was a murder or not. See, well, look, we'll, we'll include we'll include George's really, uh, geeky yeah. reference in the show notes. Thank you, George. Fascinating. <laughs> Jesus Christ! All right, should we leave that there, uh, listeners? Do let us know what you thought. This is obviously a, a an interview presenting uh, quite yeah, confronting uh, notions of how to deal with the pandemic, and but it's part not, of a larger. Not, as George said, it's part of a larger. Yeah, conversation. but they're not, they're not snowflakes. You, they, you don't have to be like, oh, um, this might have been difficult for, for, <laughs> not, for difficult, not difficult, not difficult, not difficult. No, just presenting ideas of a political position, which was one that I think, yeah, I don't know. We, we don't always agree oh, you can, with. You, so, you, so it's not possible to listen to somebody you disagree with. I mean, come on. Our listeners, I give them a personally. I, <laughs> I, I have more respect. They're the best. The best. Yeah, the, the very best. I always say this. Always say um, this. Yeah, very fine people on all the sides. <laughs> All right, listener, that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>